are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik. If we haven't been introduced before, I have a small YouTube channel here, and I like to get together on Thursday afternoons with whoever can tune in either on our YouTube channel, YouTube Live, Facebook Live, we're now broadcasting on, and then as well, we are hosted on the TWR360 website. We're grateful for our partnership with that great ministry, Trans World Radio 360. That's the online presence of that great ministry that's been reaching the world through shortwave radio and now with a great online presence for many years. So what we do on a Thursday afternoon is we get together. Usually, if I'm in town, uh, I'm doing it from my home here on the West Coast of California. Uh, If I'm not in town, I'm either doing it from the road or sometimes we have a guest who steps in for me. Now, next Thursday, I'll probably say this again before we end our time together today. Next Thursday, I hope, God willing, and if we live, I'll be doing the show from an undisclosed location. I'll tell you what it is at the time, but I don't want to announce it ahead of time. But enough for that. How we usually do the format of the program is I begin with a lead question. And the lead question uh, is typically something that comes in from our audience. Uh, Maybe it's a uh, question from email, uh, a leftover question from the previous week. Uh, This particular question came in from Facebook, from Carol from Facebook. And here's her question. She asked this, Pastor David, can you explain what the phrase crucifying the flesh means? And then she says, it's from a prayer by Spurgeon, gracious father, daily remind me that crucifying the flesh is a slow and painful process only brought about by your spirit's power. Thank you, Carol says. Well, Carol, thank you for your question. And I'm happy to deal with this question because I think it's a helpful and important one. What does it mean to crucify the flesh? And There's a few different passages of Scripture that speak to this idea. Now, obviously, the prayer that you quoted from Charles Spurgeon speaks of the idea. Again, his prayer was, Gracious Father, daily remind me that crucifying the flesh is a slow and painful process only brought about by your Spirit's power. Yes, Charles Spurgeon said that, wrote that prayer, I don't have any doubt. But he's getting the idea from several passages of Scripture probably most centrally, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, which says this, Galatians 5, 24, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, again, I don't want to imply for a moment that that's the only place in the scriptures where we have this idea of crucifying the flesh. We actually find it in many different places. Uh, But most pointedly, we do have it here on the uh, simple idea of of crucifying the flesh here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Um, And so this is what I want to get at here. Galatians 5, 24. Paul is speaking about this in the terms of discipleship 
and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here's the essential thought. God has a place for our flesh, and the flesh is simply this, to have it crucified along with its passions and desires. He wants us to nail it to the cross so that it can be under control. Obviously, anything that's nailed to a cross is under control, and it's under the sentence of death. Now, Carol, I just want to remind you in this sense, and all of our viewers right now, how fascinating it is that the Bible uses this imagery. You see, we need to remind ourselves how offensive the cross was to the first century. Death by crucifixion was something so horrific, so terrible to contemplate, that it was not even spoken of in polite company among the Romans. Of course, they knew what crucifixion was. Of course, they knew that it was carried out. Of course, many people had seen crucified victims. It was something that was done publicly and openly. But it was so horrific that people didn't talk about crucifixion in polite company. It was so just offensive. Therefore, it was radical for Christians to say that they served a crucified Savior, that they were saved by a crucified Messiah. It was radical for Christians to say that they needed to follow, metaphorically, symbolically, their Savior on the path of the cross. So what God wants to do with our flesh is for it to be crucified with Christ in the process of daily discipleship. Now, again, when he says there in Galatians 5, 24, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, I just want you to understand that crucified there is a very important word. Paul could have simply chosen the word, word killed. I mean, let me read it with that sense. And those who are Christ have killed the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay, well, that, that gives kind of the same meaning, but not really. Because he used the word crucified because it speaks of many things. Number one, it reminds us of what Jesus did for us on the cross. You, you can't say the word crucified, either now or in the first century, in a Christian context without calling to mind what happened to our Savior, what our Savior voluntarily embraced so that he could accomplish our salvation. Number two, it reminds us that we are called to take up our cross and follow him. Now, friends, that's radical. Think about it on those very terms. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 reminds us that Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So we are called to follow in the path of our Savior, of our Master. As he went to the cross, so are we. Now, make no mistake about it, Jesus went to a literal cross, and his literal flesh and blood was nailed to the cross. We are called, generally as Christians, to a metaphorical cross, a place where we identify with Jesus in his death, and we put to death the passions and the desires of the flesh. 
So it reminds us of what Jesus did on the cross. It reminds us that we're called to take up our cross and follow him. But thirdly, don't escape this. It reminds us that the death of the flesh is often painful. Death on a cross, crucifixion, was a painful way to die. I don't think we should exaggerate. There's probably, I mean, I kind of hate to admit this, but I've read in history of ways that people were killed that was probably more painful than the cross, but certainly it's right up there with one of the most painful ways to die. And the death of our flesh is often painful, but it also is decisive. Friends, you, you don't really halfway crucify somebody. It's all or nothing. And that's how we have to deal with our flesh. So when it says there in Galatians 5.24, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. That speaks of something that the believer does, obviously being directed and empowered by the Spirit of God. But this is not a unilateral work of God. This is something that the believer does in concert with, empowered by, in cooperation with God himself. You see, friends, I I think this is the way to understand it. I I understand that there's people who give different explanations of this process that I'm speaking of, but I'm going to give it to you my best understanding. The old man, that self that we inherited from Adam, That is crucified with Jesus as the sovereign unilateral work of God when we're born again. This is what Romans 6, 6 says. It says this, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That's something that God did all by himself without our participation, so to speak. He did it when we were born again. And we are simply, as Romans chapter 6, verse 11 tells us, we're simply to reckon the old man dead, to account him as dead. We're not told to put him to death, not the old man. But the flesh is another matter. We are called to choose to work with God to do to the flesh exactly what God did all by himself to the old man, that is to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. By the way, that's something that John Stott, I think, explains very well in his commentary on Galatians, as well as uh, James Montgomery Boyce gives the same idea in his commentary on Galatians. Now, the, the problem of our flesh will not be finally, completely dealt with until we're resurrected. Until then, We are called to consistently nail the flesh, so to speak, to the cross so that it hangs there. It's alive. Someone on a cross, at least until they die, they're they're alive, but they're powerless over others. I like what Martin Luther said in this regard. Martin Luther, that bobblehead that's over my shoulder here now, he said this, quote, in his commentary on Galatians, to resist the flesh is to nail it to the cross Although the flesh is still alive, it cannot very well act upon its desires because it's bound and nailed to the cross. So you see, Carol, that's what it means to crucify the flesh. It's to deny the resisting of the flesh, as it says there in Galatians 5.24, with its passions and desires. Now, this is very much what it means to die to self to take up our cross and follow Jesus. 
because doing that will mean, at least at some times, it will mean uh, uh, something of a death-like experience. It'll make us feel like we're dying. But that's what we're called to do. In Jesus Christ, we can live above the passions and desires of our flesh. The resources are there for us in Jesus Christ. So look to him. See your life in Jesus. If you are one of those who are Christ's, let me read that to you. Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If that describes you, then you belong to him. You don't belong to this world. You don't belong to Satan. You don't belong to yourself even. You certainly don't belong to your passions and desires. You belong to Jesus Christ. Therefore, resist. Resist the flesh. Resist the sinful passions and desires of the flesh. That's what it means simply to be crucified with Christ, to have crucified the flesh. So, Carol, I hope that's helpful for you. I'm so happy to be able to address this question for you. Um, Let me say something now before we uh, go on to the questions that have come in. Thank you for the questions that are coming in uh, from Facebook, from YouTube, from TWR360. Today, as I'm recording this, is March 17th, which is recognized as St. Patrick's Day. Uh, St. Patrick's Day is a day of Irish culture and heritage, but most pointedly, it remembers this man who was a wonderful Christian evangelist, pastor, and believer, Patrick of Ireland. And I just want to recommend you, we're going to put this link in the YouTube description, uh, but I'll just tell you, uh, check out this St. Patrick's Day message from a good brother named John McCarthy. Uh, John McCarthy is a big wave surfer from Ireland, and uh, he has a wonderful ministry called Cliffs of Hope. You could just go on YouTube and search for Cliffs of Hope or John McCarthy and look at his great St. Patrick's Day message. I think it's something uh, great that you can look at, and it's a great way to remember uh, St. Patrick's Day. All right, enough with that. Let me go on now to the questions that are coming in on the live chat. The first one comes from a YouTube viewer, Carmel, Carmel who asks, in the Old Testament, did the sacrifices for sin apply to those who had committed murder or other sins that required capital punishment? Okay, Carmel, you're, you're, you're uh, giving an interesting answer to a question here, or question here to, to answer. And, and, and let me say that there may be a difference between the theory and the practice I I can't give you details on how these things were actually carried out in Old Testament time. But with my understanding of the sacrificial system and the law of ancient Israel, let me give you a way that at least in theory it could have worked out. And, And again, I'll fully admit that the theory may not match together with the actual practice. But in theory, someone who committed murder could have their sin atoned for by the sacrifice of a bull or a goat or a lamb, whatever, according to the sacrificial system. Yet, they would still have to pay the civil penalty for their sin. In other words, what I'm just trying to say is that atonement 
didn't wipe away the atonement through animal sacrifice, I should say, did not wipe away the earthly and immediate consequences that a person might face because of their sin. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. There is the penalty that we pay for our sin as just a consequence of our sin in this world. Then there's the penalty or the guilt of that sin before God. God may forgive our sin in his eyes, yet there is still consequence that we have to pay for that sin in this life. It's not enough for us to say, uh, I'm forgiven before God. There may be consequences to pay. Let, Let me give a silly illustration. You're driving down the road, and if you're like me, sometimes you go over the speed limit. I hope there's no law enforcement personnel watching this right now, but it's true. Sometimes when I drive, I go over the posted speed limit. Let's say I'm going over the speed limit just by one or two miles an hour, of course, but I am uh, pulled over by a policeman uh, because I'm going too fast. And as I see those red lights in my mirror, and I know that I've been going too fast, As I pull over to the side of the road, I pray a prayer of forgiveness. Father, you say in your word that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord God, I pray that you would forgive me of this sin now. And let's say that I do all that and I am truly forgiven before God of that sin before the policeman ever reaches my car window. Okay, fine, I'm forgiven before God. (laughs) But it doesn't mean that that policeman's not gonna rightfully and righteously write me a ticket for however fast I was going. You see the distinction? So in theory, Carmel, uh, there could be a person who did make sacrifice for their sin, even an egregious sin such as murder, yet they received forgiveness before God but still had to pay a human-level penalty, a penalty in the community that would be righteous and good before God. Now, let me stress this one more time, Carmel. Um, I'm speaking in theory here. In practice, I don't know that it would ever work out that way in the Old Testament, but at least in theory, that could happen. Okay, let me go now to the next question. From our TWR 360 audience, Jonathan asked this question. Um, Is it okay to belong to a church that has the core Christian beliefs, but there are doctrinal differences? Specifically speaking, the church I attend is cessationist, but I am not. Okay, Jonathan, that's a great question. There are specific areas of uh, biblical doctrine that are important but maybe not essential to salvation. And the issue you bring up of cessationism is just one of those things. Uh, For those of you who are unfamiliar with those terms, um, in the Christian world, there's broadly speaking, two different camps of thought, uh, biblically and theologically. One is called cessationism, and the other one is called continuationism. And cessationism has the idea that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased uh, maybe when the apostles died, maybe when the New Testament was finally uh, completed, but at some time in the ancient world connected with the passing of the apostles, the miraculous gifts ceased. 
and God has not distributed miraculous gifts of the Spirit since that point. Now, that's one idea, the cessationist idea. The other idea is sometimes called continuationist or continuationism, and it's the idea that these miraculous gifts, at least in some way, have continued throughout the centuries, and even though they may have been neglected or passed over, it's not because God has withdrawn them or ceased them. Now, this would make a difference in the way that a church operates. Uh, you, you can't have a church that is continuationist and cessationist all at the same time. It's something that the leadership of the church pretty much has to make up their mind about. So, if you are persuaded, as I am, that the continuationist position is biblical, is right, it, would it be acceptable for you to be a part of a cessationist church? And, and I would just say this, Jonathan, maybe. I would just say, if it's the best church that you can practically attend. And by practically, I mean that distance or service times or other things make it practical for you to attend that church. I think this is pretty much what we should do in selecting a church. Look, you're not going to find a church that perfectly suits you. Again, maybe you do <laughs> sometimes, but even if you think you found a church that perfectly suits you, give it a little bit of time. There's probably something in that church that's going to annoy you or you consider to be less than perfect. So let me just say it to summarize. You're not going to find a church that perfectly suits you. So what do you got to do? Well, you, you've got to find the church that best matches your understanding of biblical doctrine and practice. And when I say suits you, I'm not just talking about things of uh, individual preference or choice, the style of music, the architecture, the things. I, I mean, things that are important in doctrine and practice. And I'm not even saying that those things have no importance in doctrine and practice, just they're somewhere lower on the list. If you can't find a church that perfectly matches what you think is important in doctrine and practice, then, then find a church that best matches what you believe in doctrine and practice. But Jonathan, let me say something else to you on this. If you were to go and attend that church, a church that is cessationist in its uh, approach to ministry, and you were convinced this was the best church for you and your family to attend, even though you didn't agree with them on that particular point of doctrine, I think it would be very important for you to go to that church and not subvert that teaching of the leadership of the church. In other words, do not, not, not make it your mission to change that in that church. Leave that up to the leadership of the church. Now, if they were to approach you and ask you your opinions and this, that, but don't be spreading it around. Don't be trying to gain a following. Don't try to subvert the leadership of that church on that particular issue because you disagree with it. Respect the leadership of that church. And I say this as someone who is a continuationist. If for some reason I found myself and believed that the best church for me and my family to go to was a church that believed in and practiced cessationism, I would not try to subvert the leadership of the church by persuading the people or the leadership to another position. I would be respectful of the leadership of that church. So I, I hope that's clear enough and helps you understand it, Jonathan. God bless you for that question. All right, next question comes from Millie. 
Millie asks the question from YouTube, did women go through circumcision like the men we read about, like Abraham and Moses? Uh, Millie, I can answer that question just very directly, very pointedly. No, they did not. Absolutely, they did not. There was no female equivalent to circumcision in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. Uh, It doesn't mean, of course, that women were excluded from the covenant. It's just that particular sign and seal of that covenant was not given to them, the thing of circumcision. And so the practice of female circumcision, which is really a form of mutilation that's practiced by uh, some religions, I I believe in some segments of Islam practice this in the world today. I have no idea if that's instructed by Islamic leaders or the Quran or anything. I, I, I just, according to my limited understanding, it's practiced by some Islamic people today in the world. Nowhere does the Bible command that. And I would say that it would be an act of violence against women to do that such a thing. So, uh, no, uh, Millie, there is no circumcision equivalent for women in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. Okay, and I'm going to leave aside the idea of the connection between circumcision and baptism. That's something that I find fascinating uh, because I I don't think it argues for infant baptism, but that's another issue. I'm going to leave that aside and go on to our next question from Tim, who asks from our YouTube audience. Tim says, in Joshua chapter 10, verse 12, the account of the sun stopped in Gibeon Was this interpretation literal or poetry of the earth not rotating? Was the purpose of this so that the Israelites could see during their battle? Um, I'll I'll just read to you uh, Joshua chapter 10, verse 12 um, from the New King James Version. It says this, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Achilon. Okay, Tim, um, I, I believe that by appearance, the sun stood still. What, what was actually happening in the cosmos? I don't know. A slowing of the rotation of the earth, a refraction of light miraculously, um, some other strange astronomical phenomenon. I don't know. But I would just say this, by appearance, it looked like the sun stopped in the sky and did exactly what you speak about, gave extra hours of light for the, um, uh, for the Israelites to carry out their war over the Ammonites as recorded there in Joshua chapter 10. So this is just clearly an example of um, what we would just call uh, anthropomorphism or a human-centered, it's describing things as they appear without trying to get into, um, you know, cosmic physics, astrophysics, and all the rest of it. By appearance, the sun stood still in the sky Exactly what was happening happening in the cosmos with that, I, I can't tell you. I don't exactly, people can suggest things, but I don't exactly know. 
So that's the best way I would describe it there, Tim. Hope that's helpful for you. Uh, next question comes from a YouTube viewer, Jennifer. Jennifer asks, where does Zechariah 14.12 fall on the prophetic timeline? Is it about a nuclear event? Zechariah 14.12 reads this. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike those, all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and the tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Jennifer, what a great question. And I'm doing this off the top of my head. So forgive me if it's the kind of answer that I would go back later and, and uh, fill in more details or direct things. But let me answer off the top of my head. Zechariah chapter 14, 12 describes an aspect of the Messiah's triumphant return. This is the coming of Jesus described in Revelation chapter 19, where he comes with the armies of heaven to conquer, to establish his victory at Armageddon. Now, there are several passages of scripture in the Old Testament, mainly, that tell us more about this triumph of the Messiah when he returns. There's an aspect of it that happens at Jerusalem. There's an aspect of it that happens at Armageddon, the Valley of Jezreel. And there's an aspect of it that happens at Basra, which is today modern day um, Jordan, the kingdom of Jordan, uh, in some way connected with Petra and the ancient lands of the Edomites. So we have activity happening in these three places, Jerusalem, the Valley of Jezreel, and Basra. Now, Jesus triumphs in military conquest over the enemies of God and the enemies of his people. And when I say his people there, I mean it in two senses. First of all, his church, his gathered people, his, uh, his, his, uh, his ones that are redeemed because of their faith in the Messiah, and the people chosen for a particular work, a role, I should say, in God's unfolding plan of the ages, that is the Jewish people. And in defending them, he strikes out against the enemies of God, the enemies of those who are called and have some purpose in God's unfolding plan. Now, this reference you make from Zechariah chapter 14, verse 12, um, I'll read it one more time. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve where they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouth. This describes the victory of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, over these enemies. So I don't think that it has reference to a nuclear weapon because, now I don't want to sound flippant about this, but I'll, I'll just explain it simply. I don't think Jesus needs nukes when he comes back to triumph over a sinful and rebellious world when he comes in his glorious return. Now, by the word and the power of his mouth, he may command a similar effect to a nuclear weapon, that's conceivable, that's possible. And what you describe here, flesh dissolving, eyes dissolving, tongues dissolving, you know, this is somebody just being shattered in their person. 
we think about this in you know CGI movies and comic book movies and things like this, but but something analogous to that happening to the enemies of the Lord. Again, I don't think it's a nuclear weapon because Jesus doesn't need a nuke, but he could command by the word of his mouth an effect very similar to that against the enemies of the Lord. So because this describes not a battle between human armies, nor does it describe what rebellious humanity tries to do against a returning Jesus Christ, one returning in glory, I believe it describes this great return of Jesus and does not describe a nuclear weapon. Now, let me say, I I have no doubt that when Jesus does return in glory with 10,000s of his saints, when he returns with his church, not previously when he returns for his church, but when he returns with his church in glory, I don't have any doubt that humanity will try to shoot him out of the sky with nuclear weapons. But of course, it'll all be in vain. Um, Such attempts can do nothing but come to uh, futility because the Lord laughs against all those who oppose him and his victory will be clear upon that day. Okay, I hope that's helpful for you there, Jennifer. Let me go on to the next question from Donald. Donald asks this question. Because of John 8, 7, does that mean that we can't call a person out of their sin because we're sinners ourselves? John chapter 8, verse 7 says this. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Uh, Donald, no, I I don't believe that John 8, 7, the words of Jesus there, indicates for us that we can't call a person out of their sin if we have any sin. What it means is this, we can't condemn a person to death for their sin uh, if we are sinless. Now, I'm leaving outside of this uh, the whole issue of capital punishment. That, that takes place with due process of law, and that was allowed for under the Old Covenant, and it's also spoken of in a permitted sense in the New Testament. So I'm leaving outside that, but what it is, is um, for us to take justice in our own hands, not in the hands of the legitimate civil government, for us to take justice in our own hands and to execute upon somebody else. Because that's what casting a stone was in the context of John chapter 8. You know, the whole context is the woman taken in adultery, brought to Jesus. Uh, The religious leaders bring the question to Jesus, uh, hey, why? uh, what should we do with this woman? Should we execute her according to the law? Should we let her go? Jesus saw through their hypocrisy. He saw that it was a setup. And Jesus said so brilliantly, he said, uh, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Throw the first stone at her. Now, to throw a stone at this woman wasn't to insult her. It wasn't to uh, say something bad against her. It wasn't to rebuke her for her sin. It was to initiate the actual execution of this woman. And Jesus says, and especially to that particular crowd, because they were not without sin in that very matter. They were the ones who, in some regard, had sinfully set up this woman uh, just to make a 
terrible example of her before Jesus and to use her as an excuse to try to trap Jesus. But of course, Jesus would not be trapped in this situation. He would not allow such a thing to happen. So really, that's what we're dealing with here, uh, Donald. Uh, The casting of stone wasn't to offer a criticism or a rebuke or a correction. It was to actually execute somebody. And that's what Jesus spoke against. All right, next question comes from our YouTube audience from Andromeda. What a wonderful name, Andromeda. Andromeda asks this question. If in the past I sinned deliberately and my testimony was ruined by the repentant from my heart, how can I clean my testimony before unbelievers and be used as an instrument to bring people to Christ? (laughs) Andromeda, let me just say, I hope you're watching right now. What a wonderful question. Andromeda, God is building in you right now a beautiful, powerful testimony. And that beautiful, powerful testimony is not the testimony of a sinless life. Come on. None of us have such a testimony. Only Jesus had such a testimony. But what he's building in you right now is a life and a demonstration of genuine repentance. So your job is day by day to build that testimony of repentance. Okay, I want to imagine myself in someone who's looking at your life directly from the outside. And and, Andrew Mina, I I don't know how long ago these particular sins are in your past. I don't know if they're a month ago. I don't know if they're a year ago. I don't know if they're five years ago. But, but we can understand that we wouldn't blame a person if it was a month ago for looking at your life and saying, well, Andromeda used to be all bound up in those sins a month ago. Now she's living differently. I, I trust you're a woman, Andromeda. It sounds like a woman's name to me. Forgive me if that's not the case. But, but again, you say she, she appears to be different now. Let's see if it lasts. And every day that you walk in the repentance that God has so beautifully gifted you with, you are building a powerful testimony. Andrew Mita, we do not need to have a testimony of perfection. We need to have a testimony of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And you're building that up day by day. So just keep doing it. Keep walking in a right relationship with the Lord, abiding in him, And be encouraged that God is building a beautiful, a wonderful testimony in and through you. So happy to hear it. All right, I'm going to go to the next question now uh, from our TWR 360 audience from Char. Char asks this question, in your commentary on Hebrews 12.1, you describe every weight as something that may not be sin, but something that may hinder us that we may lay aside. Would you please give some examples of what those things might be? Well, Char, I'll just throw out some things. And I'm always a little bit self-conscious throwing out things like this. And I'll tell you why I'm a little bit self-conscious. Because somebody may hear a word of condemnation from me when I just throw out possibilities like this, but, but I'm, I'm not trying to condemn anybody for the following practices. Um, what I'm just saying is that these are things that may become 
a weight that prevents somebody from going forward with Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, a hobby. A hobby could be obsessive. Uh, Somebody whose hobby is uh, fishing or hunting or doing some kind of craft or painting or whatever. If that person becomes so obsessed with their hobby, it in itself is not a sin, but if it so dominates their life that it keeps them from truly following after Jesus Christ and giving honor unto him. Again, I hope nobody's saying to, hearing me say that uh, fishing or a hobby or hunting or crafting or something necessarily does those things, but they could. If it is, then it's a weight that so easily ensnares us. Uh, Things like the uh, responsible consumption of alcohol. Again, we all know that the Bible says getting drunk, intoxicated, that's a sin. Is it permitted for some Christians? And I'll just leave it at that. Some Christians to drink? Well, yes, but could it become something that becomes a weight in their life that they should lay aside? Yes. So, I mean, I could name any number of things. Hobbies, relationships, um, uh, certain forms of food, uh, alcoholic drinks, things like this. These are all things that have the potential to become weights that so easily ensnare us. They are things that aren't necessarily in and of themselves bad or evil or forbidden, but it matters what place they have in our life. And there are times Friends, there are times when God will very jealously speak to our heart about something that he wants us to deny ourselves just for his sake, just for his cause. Again, I I understand this is hard for us to comprehend sometimes. Sometimes we're so focused on our liberty as Christians. We don't realize that God has the liberty to put his finger on something in our life and to say, dear child, this practice for this season, I call you to lay it aside for my sake. If God were to say such a thing for you, if he in his providence were to guide you in such a way, would you listen? Could you hear him? I hope so. So Char, these are the kind of things that I would categorize under this idea of every weight things that in and of themselves are not necessarily sinful, but can be hindrances to our walk with God. And so whether or not they are hindrances, that's really between the believer and their Lord. Maybe a trusted friend or something could give you insight from the outside. But again, that's the general message there. Okay, um, next question comes from, I'm only going to pronounce the second name here because it's going to be easier for me to pronounce. Amoye, uh, I take it that's your last name, but Amoye um, asks this question. Why did the King James Bible say fasting and prayer in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, and just prayer in other versions like the New American Standard, ESV, etc., 1 Corinthians 7, 5, says this. And again, I'm reading the King James Version. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that may ye give me yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan may tempt you not for your inconsistency. Okay, your your question there, Amoya, is why? Well, here it is. The King James 
and the New King James are based on a different textual tradition of the Greek New Testament. Uh, I'll use imprecise terminology for this, but the King James and the New King James are based on the Byzantine textual tradition, while these other translations, the ones you mentioned, the New American Standard, the ESV, so on and so forth, are based on, again, I'm using imprecise terminology, but just for my own sake, we'll call it the Alexandrian uh, textual family. And it's just different in those textual families. And, and, and the, the valid question is, which is a better reflection of what the Apostle Paul first wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? That's the whole question of textual comparison and criticism. And how do we determine that? Well, I don't think we determine it by an automatic answer. The Alexandrian textual family is always correct or the Byzantine textual family is always correct. I think that these things have to be judged on a case-by-case basis. Good commentaries, good Greek resources will um, tell you the manuscripts that they're found in, the weight of those manuscripts, uh, other kind of consistencies or inconsistencies in the textual tradition, and a determination can be made by that. Off the top of my head, I can't tell you which one I would prefer to be a more accurate translation. I'd have to do some research and dig into that. But I'll tell you the reason why there's a difference. Again, the King James and the New King James are based on a textual tradition. Um, You could call it the Byzantine textual. It goes by different names, but let's just call it this, the Byzantine textual tradition. Whereas... These other translations, New American Standard, ESV, NIV, most modern translations are based on a different textual tradition. Again, just for shorthand, we could call it the Alexandrian. And I I do believe that we have to take these different readings on a case-by-case basis. I don't automatically assume that one is always superior over the other. I think they have to be judged on a case-by-case basis. Hope that's helpful for you there, Amoye. That's a very good question. All right. Uh, Marielle from Facebook asks this question. Are we really obligated to say in the name of Jesus at the beginning or end of each prayer? Sometimes my prayers are really short and it doesn't feel natural. Marielle, God bless you. What a great question. I, and I love that. Listen, some of the best prayers are short prayers. Make no mistake about it. Uh, I, I like the prayer of Peter when he was sinking under the water after um, having walked on the water, at least for a few steps. He just cried, Lord, help me. That's a short prayer, but it was a great prayer. Prayers don't have to be long to be effective before God. And Peter probably didn't have time to say, Lord, help me in Jesus' name. So, no, Mary, let me just make this plain. Saying the words in Jesus' name does not make a prayer in Jesus' name. Let me explain. To pray in the name of Jesus has a few connotations. Number one, it means to pray in him as our mediator and our access before God. Uh, I I know that most of the world uh, doesn't use checks anymore, you know, written out checks where you write an amount 
Uh, they're used more commonly in America, but other places in the world don't use them at all. But a, a check is basically a piece of paper uh, with your bank account information on it. And you write somebody's name and you say, pay to the order. If you were to take a check to the bank from me, you're not asking for that money in your name. You're asking for that money in my name because my name is on the check. You're asking on the basis of my resources and bank account, not on the basis of your resources and bank account. So for that simple reason, to pray in the name of Jesus is simply to pray on the basis of Jesus's merits, Jesus's access to God, Jesus as our mediator. It's not to come to God and say, if I were the one praying, Hey, Lord, it's David. I'm so awesome. Listen to my prayer. It's to come in the name of Jesus. Say, Lord, I come in the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one that's awesome, and he's given me the permission to come in his name. Now, that attitude of heart in prayer is far more important than actually saying the words in Jesus' name. There are prayers that are legitimately made in the name of Jesus that never have the words in Jesus' name attached to them. And then there's other prayers that could say in Jesus' name all day long, but that person's heart isn't coming in Jesus' name one bit. So I hope that that is clear to you, Mariel, that there's a difference here, a difference between um, praying in my name or in the name of a saint or in the name of a pastor or in the name of somebody else. But we come in Jesus' name, not in the name of a saint, not in the name of Mary, not in the name of anybody else. We come in the name of Jesus. If that is established in the heart to pray on his ground and to the best of our ability, according to his heart, that's truly a prayer in the name of Jesus. So, Mariel, that's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. And you can pray a very short prayer that in your heart is prayed on the basis of Jesus and what he's done and what he has asked. Okay, uh, next question comes from our YouTube viewer, uh, Kersey, B. Kersey. says, currently studying Mark chapter 12. Jesus hasn't used any parables since Mark 4. To your way of thinking, why is he using the parabolic teaching method here? Okay, well, we need to understand something. That if you're really interested in the use of parables, it's probably more helpful to focus on the Gospel of Luke. Now, of course, Jesus uses parables in the other Gospels. Not so much in the Gospel of John, but in Matthew and Mark, of course. But Luke is the Gospel that most focuses on parables. And I think that Jesus' purpose in parables was not merely to put information into, you know, illustrative terms, but it was also to um, hide the truth in pictures that the spiritually sensitive would understand and grab a hold of. This is explained in the Gospels when they ask Jesus the purpose of his use of parables. Again, it's to use pictures that could be understood by those who have some spiritual sensitivity. 
And those who did not have the spiritual sensitivity might not understand what Jesus was saying at all. And there were times when that was perfectly okay with Jesus because it would mean that those who did not understand would not be building up the guilt for themselves of having specifically rejected something that they understood. So I don't think there's any one reason for the use of parables. In some regard, they're illustrative stories. But in another regard, they were ways of Jesus presenting the truth so that it could be heard and understood by those with spiritual sensitivity. Now, B. Kersey, I don't know which gospel it's in, but if you look in my commentary on the gospel account, again, I can't tell you if it's Matthew, Mark, or Luke, of the parable of the sower, I think I give a good explanation of the purpose of parables when that comes up there in the text. So I I would recommend you to my commentary there. All right, I'm going to take a few more questions here. But before I do, I just want to remind you of a few things. Hey, look for a St. Patrick's Day message by my friend and brother, John McCarthy. Uh, We're going to put the link in the description of our YouTube video, but just go to YouTube and search for John McCarthy or Clips of Hope. Cliffs of Hope, not Clips. Cliffs of Hope. Uh, John McCarthy is a good brother in Ireland. He's a big wave surfer, and he does a great job presenting a St. Patrick's Day message. So uh, check that out. Uh, And then I'll continue with a few more questions here. Um, David asks, is Ezekiel 38 Gog and Magog the same as Revelation 20 Gog and Magog? (sighs) Okay, David, let me say the succinct answer to your question is, I don't know. Maybe. I suspect not. (laughs) And there's a lot involved in that question. I don't think I can give a definitive answer. But when you piece it all together, especially with what Ezekiel 38 and 39 says, what will happen in the aftermath of that battle, for me, it makes it hard to reconcile the battle with Gog and Magog that's described in Revelation chapter 20. Again, because of the aftermath, there's years and years of burying the dead after the battle described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. From my understanding of the battle described in Revelation chapter 20, there's no time for that. None of that happens after that. So I would make a distinction between the two. I don't know if I could be absolutely certain on it, but I would say I suspect not. Uh, I see too many distinctions between them. A couple more questions here. Race asks, does the Bible give us any idea of how long before creation the war in heaven was? Race, uh, no, it just gives us no idea. We've given no marking point for that. So we just can't say. We can speculate. People speculate all the time. But um, I, I don't think that such speculation is wrong. It's okay for people to speculate about things, but they just need to be clear. And if they're talking about it to other people, they need to be clear what is speculation and what is not speculation. And then finally, our last question for the day comes from uh, Dusanka. Ask this question of our YouTube audience. 
First John says, none has ever seen God, yet in John's gospel, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Please comment. Okay, Dusanka, when it says that no one has seen God in First John, since it's the same author who wrote the gospel of John, we understand that really what John is speaking about is nobody has seen God in the immediate sense. <laughs> There's no person dwelling on earth who has seen face to face God the Father enthroned in glory in heaven. It's just not going to happen. So that's something that awaits for the world to come, not this world. But what's God like? What's his nature? What's his character? We can see that reflected in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So there's a sense in which we can see God in Jesus, and people could, but not to see him in the immediate face-to-face of being before the throne of God sense. Um, so that's really what John is speaking about there. Hope that's helpful for you there at Desanka. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of today. As I said previously, next week, going to be from an undisclosed location. Uh, I'll tell you about it when we get there, but it'll be remote. It will not be here from uh, my home on the West Coast. So I'm so pleased that you could join us today. God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful day. And may God continue to answer your questions and grow you in your walk before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God bless you, and we hope to see you again next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.